morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 23rd, we are studying Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, he finds the situation with the remaining nine disciples in complete disarray. But Jesus proves himself to be the faithful one in the midst of a faithless generation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Pastor Ulmer, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 9 this morning, coming down from the mountain of transfiguration. What do we need to know about immediate context or the gospel as a whole that will help us into this text? Yeah, I think that there's two very important pieces of context that we have to take in mind to understand Mark 9, 14 through 29. And for the first piece of context, we're going to have to go back a couple chapters to chapter 6. This is where Jesus uh, instructs and sends out the 12 to go into the various towns and cities and he sends them into those uh, towns and cities and areas to do the work of the gospel that Jesus has been doing to uh, heal the sick, uh, cast out demons, and and preach the good news. Um, we we learn kind of right before the second event that we have to talk about, the Transfiguration, that they they end up coming back and they are very successful in that ministry as they, as they go out and do the work of the kingdom of God. Um, So we have to keep in mind uh, that they were sent out, that they did the work of the kingdom and that they were successful. The second thing that we have to remember is what happens immediately before this text. And that is of course, the great text of the transfiguration where Jesus, uh, as he, normally does take some time to go by himself uh, for prayer, but this time he takes his inner circle of disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. They get to see Jesus' divinity displayed before them. Uh, They get to see Moses and Elijah, the the law and the prophets, attest to who Jesus is. They get to hear God the Father out of the cloud say that Jesus is uh, the beloved Son, uh, and he instructs uh, the disciples and, and the readers of the text to listen to Jesus. Um, and then they come down the mountain. Jesus instructs them to um, tell nobody anything that they had seen until Jesus ra- or until the sun raises from the dead. And then we get into the text that's before us this morning. All right. So we've had Jesus' disciples sent out previously, and they've had success— and success meaning they did what Jesus had given them to do. That was actually accomplished. And now Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration with three of his disciples to the remaining nine. And we're going to see how they fare with those tasks that Jesus had been given 
now here in Mark chapter 9. So with that introduction, we turn our eyes to the text, to Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, that is Jesus with Peter, James, and John, came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's the text for today. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. So, Pastor Ulmer, the text begins, again, as you said, with Jesus and his three disciples in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, coming down the mountain of transfiguration. They encounter this great crowd around the disciples. Scribes are arguing with the disciples. It's it's just a big commotion. How how should we picture what's going on here? Yeah, I kind of like to see with the text before you kind of have this um, amazing event, which is supposed to be kind of Jesus going away into a serene place to to speak with his father and and the disciples got to see this wonderful experience of of calm and recharge and and immediately when they come down the mountain they they see this uh gigantic commotion this this effect of of the sinful world um happening and uh Jesus kind of dives right in uh, sees all this chaos, sees all this commotion, and, and decides to, to figure out what's going on because, uh, after all, it's his job to to go in and overturn the effects of sin in the world. Um, so he, he goes in, he tries to, to figure out what they're arguing about, and uh, it doesn't take him very long to figure out what's going on. Right, so there's there's this argument when, when Jesus shows up, it says that the crowd sees him and they're greatly amazed and they run up and greet him. Is that just a, a symptom of, you know, everything's been going wrong in this scene? It's just one big zoo, you might even say. And here's Jesus like, oh, maybe he can do something about this. Is that, is that kind of the sense we get? 
I, I do think you, you get that sense, especially uh, when we're going to find out here in just a little bit that the father of this boy who is ill had the intention of bringing his son to Jesus for him to fix the problem, but apparently he wasn't able to be found because he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus wasn't there, uh, the the dilemma that is happening in this particular text arises because uh, the disciples who are left are not able to to help the man. Yeah, I mean, we know that they had come to, or excuse me, he had come to Jesus. He even says that, teacher, I brought my son to you. That mm-hmm. they don't find, he doesn't find Jesus there. And so, well, here's the disciples. And, and as you pointed out in the context, they've done this before. This time they're not able to. Now, what's, you mentioned this, I think, as you're, you're setting this up. You know, imagine the transfiguration having just happened. Jesus has gone up the mountain. He was praying there. He's come back down. It's been a rather peaceful time, I suppose. I mean, at least it's been a, he's been away from it all. You might think of it like that. Mm-hmm. And here he comes down to a bunch of commotion. Although when you, you put that into the, some of the scriptural context, perhaps that shouldn't be all that unexpected to us. Yeah, it it happens in a couple a couple notable points in scripture. You have the um the instance in Exodus 32 where Moses is up on the top of Sinai receiving the 10 commandments and the instructions from God. You kind of think that being in the presence of God for 40 days would would uh be a fulfilling and a refreshing experience, but what happens when Moses comes down the mountain? He sees he sees the people in their abject idolatry, and he has to, to confront them, uh, even causing them to burn the idol, grind it up, and he forces them to drink it. Um, you also see this with Elijah, um, where he is taking refuge uh, at Mount Horeb, and he comes down the mountain, and coming down from Horeb in his refuge with God is when he has to confront um, the priests of uh, of Baal and Asherah. So you, you, this kind of coming from a mountain, a place of respite, and coming down and, and seeing the effects of sin and idolatry in the world isn't unusual in Scripture. That's right. I mean, it, even just thinking through, and it's not always with a mountain, I suppose, but thinking through the wandering of the people of Israel in the wilderness, how often did they get that moment of rest from the Lord where he provided for them? And what are they doing the very next moment? They're grumbling. They're complaining again. Yeah, and so we are. we see that back and forth in the scriptures throughout of the people of God receiving the gifts of the Lord and, and receiving them even in faith. And in the very next moment, there they are doubting and not believing and complaining and grumbling. And so our Lord returns from the mountain of his transfiguration into that scene. The disciples are said to be arguing with the scribes. And we know elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark that the scribes are always antagonistic toward Jesus. Do you think that's what's going on here? Perhaps they're, I don't know, maybe, and this is a bit of speculation, I recognize, but, you know, making fun of the disciples or saying, Hey, we could do it. Or some sort of, some sort of argument is the, the scene. Yeah. I, I, I think once again, recognizing that we're kind of in speculation land here, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it also would make even more sense if you combine that with 
put, putting yourself in the disciples' shoes, it, it wasn't that long ago when they were able to actually do this kind of miracle where they actually had the power and the ability to set the set the world right and, and here when they weren't able to do it, I think it it made for an easy opportunity for the scribes, the opponents of Jesus to come in and and harass them a little bit. I also think that the disciples, knowing that they could do this in the past, were probably uh, set on edge a little bit and became argumentative, maybe trying to defend their ministry and defend the ministry of their Lord. Yeah, I mean, and that I think that bears out in the in the end of the text at the conclusion where they actually get the chance to ask Jesus privately about what happened and why they couldn't do it. So, and it is it's quite something, you know, on the mountain of Transfiguration, Jesus has Peter, James, and John. And we know that they're afraid up there. They don't get what's going on up there. I mean, Peter even admits as much. You know, he he speaks what he speaks, but but then the text tells us he was afraid. He didn't know what he was talking about. So while they're up on the mountain, not really getting what Jesus is doing there, you've got the other nine down the mountain, not really getting what's going on there. So I mean, it's sort of a you know, if you put these two scenes yeah. side by side. Up the mountain, down the mountain, the disciples really are, are kind of clueless, which fits with the picture that Mark has given us of the disciples so far. I agree with that statement. And I also think that this shows that at least these nine disciples, we can't say that about the, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, because they just weren't there for them. But I don't think that these disciples uh, completely got what happened back in Matthew 6 when Jesus sent them into the towns and the the villages to heal. It almost seems to me like these nine disciples, when they were in the villages and the the cities healing and casting out demons, that they had gotten the idea or the impression that the ability to heal was coming from them when all along it was coming from the name of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think, again, to, to think about what they ask him at the end of the text and how he answers, I think that <laughs> I think that's what what is going on as well, that they've they've lost sight of who Jesus is as the one who sent them, the one who apostled them in the first place. That's what the word apostle means. He sends and he does so with his authority. And it seems that they've forgotten that, that the authority belongs to Jesus and not to them. The other thing, and we may revisit some of this when we get toward the end of the text. The other thing that I think stands as a really big deal in between Mark six and what we've got here in Mark nine is what just happened right before Jesus transfiguration, where Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, but then he immediately rebuked Jesus for the matter of his suffering, death and resurrection. The disciples didn't get that. And, and I think that that lack of understanding and that lack of faith, particularly in the very heart of who Jesus is and his mission to be our suffering and risen savior. I I think that plays into their failure here as well. Yeah. I, once again, I couldn't agree with you more because I think the, the, the primary thing that is missing in this entire passage is faith. Mm. Uh, at this point, while the disciples had experienced Jesus's ministry, it is clear that they they haven't gotten it yet. 
Yeah. And, and we've, we've seen that at other junctures throughout the gospel of Mark. And we're going to keep seeing that, that they just don't get it. And, and I think, and we'll, we'll talk more about this as we go, that, that, that provides a, a level of comfort to us when we don't get it, that, that even the 12 who were right there with Jesus, they didn't get it. And, and we see the graciousness of our Lord in continuing to bear with us and teach us and support us in the midst of that in order to draw us closer to faith in him. And I think those themes will continue to, to come out as we continue to look at this text. So Jesus finds out from the man what's going on. He, he's asked, okay, tell me what's going on. Why are you arguing? And Someone from the crowd speaks up, and we find out pretty quickly that he really stands as the center. He's the one who's brought this child of his to Jesus. And this is one of those places where Mark really, even though he's often known to us as the the brief gospel, the one who likes to, to move through stories quickly, he starts to slow down here a little bit and give us some pretty good detail. Take us into what this man sets the scene as he presents the problem to Jesus. Yeah, I mean, the, the man is obviously brought his son to to Jesus because this this child has major major problems. I mean, he's falling down, he's foaming, he's gnashing, grinding his teeth. He becomes as if he as if he's all dried up. I mean, this this spirit, this this evil presence in him is is really making his life uh miserable. And apparently he had heard about Jesus and apparently he had uh, come to the understanding, at least basically, that if he could get this child to, to Jesus, that the child would be all right. Uh, but like we said earlier in, in this show, Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't available. And when his disciples tried to take control of the situation, uh, they were, uh, they failed. The man was left wanting and kind of everybody's faith is kind of holding on by a thread. Right. Yeah. And the, the description that, that the man gives as Mark records it again is very vivid. As you said, we've, we've seen this throughout the gospel of Mark where Jesus is encountered by a demon or someone who is possessed by a demon and the accounts always go the same way. So we kind of have a, a feeling for, for where this is going to go. We know what Jesus does when he is met by demons and how even the demons know what's going to happen. So we've kind of gotten on our minds of, of what's going to happen here. But the the situation here with all of the surrounding circumstances, Jesus is going to, to do some teaching and talking about all of those before he actually does deal with this demon, as, as we will see. And the first one of those surrounding circumstances is Jesus maybe exasperated is the word for, we don't, I want to be careful because it doesn't actually say, you know, Jesus felt this or, or he sighed. Mark has given us some of those emotion words of Jesus previously. We don't have that here. It simply says he answered them. But as I read the words and the answer of Jesus, exasperation seems to be the emotion that I would attach to them. Uh, What do you think? I I think if, if I were to put myself in Jesus's shoes and I were to utter these words, they would be done in an exasperation. It would be with a sigh. It would be done with frustration because I think to this point in the gospel, Jesus has showed them over and over and over again, who he is. 
I mean, you can almost read this as, oh, faithless generation. If you would just have believed what you have seen, none of this boy would have been healed. There wouldn't be a gigantic crowd gathered here. There wouldn't be an argument. Everything would be, would be fixed. But because you don't believe, everything is broken and you've made it worse. Yeah, I, th- I mean, that's that's what Jesus is saying, and I think exasperation does fit that. Now, when he uses this language, it's very strong. Oh, faithless generation. And I, I think one of the questions that we should ask and explore is, who does Jesus include in those words, oh, faithless generation? It, it sounds like something that would be pretty harsh if applied to his disciples, but given the context— uh, it seems like we might need to include the disciples in there. How how should we understand who Jesus is talking to with O Faithless Generation? Yeah, in in my uh, preparation for this show and in reading commentaries, I kind of got the the idea that there are multiple kind of interpretations of this. Uh, one person said that normally when when using this word generation, the disciples aren't included. Um, but I, I think I'm more convinced, uh, towards the other argument with, because of the context here, because of the nine's inability to cast out the the unclean spirit, I think that he's talking about everybody involved here. Mm-hmm. I think he's talking about his disciples. I think he's talking about the crowds. I even think he, he could be potentially talking about uh, the father here. Now, that's going to resolve here in just a second. But, but he's really attacking the, the main issue here, the issue that's even bigger than his son, this man's son being sick. It's the fact that all of these people don't believe Right. The lack of faith is what Jesus has been confronted with as he's come down the mountain. And his disciples certainly, by all accounts, are included in that. Just within the Gospel of Mark, I'm reminded of not that long ago in chapter 8, before the transfiguration of Jesus, there's this this dual account, which I, I think is placed side by side on purpose, where the Pharisees come and they want a sign from Jesus. They're demanding a sign from Jesus. And in answering, that's where we actually find out Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. So you get an emotion word there. But he, he uses this word. Why does this generation seek a sign? And so there's that word about this generation applied to the Pharisees and those who would seek a sign rather than believing the word. That's that theme of faith. And then right after that, you get this account where they get into a boat, Jesus and his disciples do, and and Jesus starts teaching about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, of Herod, and the disciples, God bless them, think that Jesus is talking about their lack of bread. And and Jesus there, you know, <laughs> yeah. he, he tells them, well, you know, why are your hearts hardened? Again, very strong language against his own disciples, language that sounds a lot like things that he said to people who are outright opposed to him. So I, I think, having said all of that, that when you get here in Mark chapter 9, and you hear Jesus use very similar language, and he says, oh, faithless generation, in a context where his disciples have have shown themselves to be lacking understanding and especially lacking faith, that they they fit in that. And, and I mean, feel free to respond to that, Pastor Omar, but also, you know, just help us a little bit, because I think anytime we see the scriptures speak 
negatively toward those who we regard as saints or, or people who are exemplary of their faith, we always kind of shy back from that. Why is it important that the scriptures do give us these very real pictures of these men we call saints? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful question. And it's actually something that in a different conversation I was talking about with uh, the adult Bible class here at St. Paul and Bishop, that there there's this element where Jesus does speak in language that we well, I'll, I'll make that even more personal. He speaks in language that I uh, think is pretty harsh to people that I do 100% believe are saints. But the the kind of the miracle, though, the wonderful blessing here is that these disciples chose to to record these things for our benefit. They they're recording their struggles with believing in Jesus, that we might uh, learn who Jesus is through their experience and through their words, that when we go into uh, the battles that we are fighting in this life against uh, the enemies of God and our enemies, sin, death, and devil, that we might know uh, where we would get our power and our strength from, from none other than Jesus Christ. Yeah, when we when we see these sins of the saints, these failings of the saints, the unbelief even of the saints, it should strengthen us, again, to, to see how Jesus was gracious to them, how he was merciful to them, how he bore with them. And you're exactly right to remind us that this comes from those very men, we, we've t- said many times that St. Mark likely got a lot of his material from St. Peter, and we've seen in consecutive texts now how, you know, Peter isn't portrayed in a very good light here in several texts in a row. He, he quote, no, he, no, he's not. He, he sort of, you know, gets it, we would say, when he confesses Jesus is the Christ, but he turns around and then rebukes Jesus. And just on the mountain of transfiguration, he didn't know what he was talking about because he was too afraid. And now here we're back down the mountain and the rest of his, his companions, they're not getting it either. And it, it came from the, the pen of these men. They, they want us to see this so that you know, we would confess, and this is going to take us to St. Paul, but I mean, think of how he writes in 1 Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And, and that's true of, Amen. of Peter, it's true of Paul. And, and as you said, Pastor Elmer, we should never forget this, that's true of you and me, that when we see these examples of the saints in their unbelief, we should take, take heart and take comfort in the fact that Jesus is gracious to them and he is gracious to us seeking to strengthen our faith. And with that, we're going to take our break here on Sharper Iron. We're looking at Mark chapter 9 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 23rd. We are looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. We have Pastor Matt Ulmer with us. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we were looking at the disciples and this entire faithless generation that Jesus has encountered coming down the mountain. They have not believed who he is and what he has done so far, but he is here. And he says to the Father, bring him to me. And you mentioned this ahead of time, that in this faithless generation, we've, we've got this Father, but that's going to be resolved. And that's where Mark's text takes us next. So the Father brings his son, the whole crowd brings the boy to Jesus. You get that moment there where the evil spirit convulses the boy, he falls on the ground, you start to see that behavior that the Father's described. And then we get this conversation between Jesus and the father, which I think is, is really central to this account and, and maybe even very central to everything that Mark is doing in his gospel. Get us started into this conversation that happens between the boy's father and Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing that needs to be said as we're leading into this conversation is that even though Jesus makes this pretty harsh statement of faithless generation, and, and I would include the Father in that, at least to an extent, um, their faithlessness in this instance doesn't prevent Jesus from acting. Um, Jesus does uh, seek to do his Jesus thing here. He He has them bring him the child, when the child is brought to him, the demon, the demon does what demons do in Jesus' presence, uh, convulse him, uh, make him fall upon the ground, rolling around, foaming and everything. And then, like you said, we get in this conversation with the father. Jesus asks the father uh, how, how much time this has been happening to him. The father very uh, succinctly answers him from childhood. And then I think we get into the the biggest meat of this conversation. He adds a little bit more detail stating that this demon cast him into fire and into water in order to kill the child. And apparently it, it wasn't able to do it. Uh, but then the father um, makes a ask of Jesus. He says, if, if you can do anything for us, have compassion. And that kind of question um, leads, at least in my opinion, to some of the more interesting things that happen in this text. Yeah. So if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And, you know, I think, I mean, it's as if Jesus is inviting this man into this conversation with him. And of course, this is always, again, a bit of speculation as to what Jesus could have done. We've seen him in other instances simply cast out demons right then and there. But before doing that, he invites this further conversation. And so it's, it's as if he's, he wants to have this conversation with this man and to teach this man in this conversation. And then, of course, teach you and me as we read it here in his inspired word. So that that word then that the, the man speaks, that if you can, that's what Jesus keys on. And the way that it reads, this is in verse 23, Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes, which I think there's perhaps a number of ways we could misunderstand what Jesus says. This is worth our time. What is, what's Jesus 
coming back at this man, what is, what is his objection and how does he respond to that objection? Yeah, I to to me, I think the objection comes from the the difference in between how the man presents himself as as bringing the child before this encounter before he before he came into encounter with Jesus' disciples because apparently he had heard enough about Jesus and became convinced that if he saw Jesus that Jesus would do something for him. And by the time that the man experienced these nine disciples and their failure, the faith that he had, which was apparently confidence that Jesus was capable to do something, and to him merely saying, uh, if you are able, uh, please have compassion on us. I think there's a, there's a big disparity in, in faith there. And Jesus responds to him, if, if you're able, like, I, I may be paraphrasing here, or I might be speaking over my skis, but he's kind of saying, Abel, this isn't even a question about ability. There, everything is possible for the one who believes, right? He, he's, he dealt with faith, calling this generation faithless, and now he's saying everything is possible for the one who believes. And, and I think like you said, this can be easily mistaken through some bad preaching where we could say as a pastor, hey, if, if you just believe, you can, you can do anything that you want. Here, I, I think he is, he is showing his disciples, he's showing these scribes, he is showing this father that um, faith is the key, number one. And the one who's going to get it done is the one who never fails in belief. And that's ultimately going to be him. Mm. So it, it would be a wrong preaching of this text to come along and say everyone or ev- everything is possible for the one who believes saying, Pastor Alma, you need to have more faith. That That's the problem. Is yeah, you don't correct. believe enough. Rather, if I'm following what you're saying, then Jesus is actually pointing this man and, you know, your faith is in the wrong thing or in the wrong person. Correct. So that everyone, everything is possible for the one who believes we should understand Jesus pointing this man actually to himself. And Jesus is pointing this man to Jesus. Jesus is the one for whom everything is possible because Jesus is the one who has perfect faith. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. Which, I mean, and that's, that's so, so important because there is a, a tendency in our own minds to place our faith in our faith, that if my yes. faith is strong enough, then I can do it. Whereas the biblical conception of faith has nothing to do with the strength of the faith itself, the, the strength of the trust, but it has everything to do with the strength of the object. And, and if the object is strong, then your faith is strong. But if the object is no good, well, then your faith is also no good. Absolutely. I mean, I think you said it beautifully that we have the capability of perverting even our faith into an idol. I think that's just a different way of saying what you said, Hmm. that if our faith is in in our faith, then our faith is an idol. Hmm. Hmm. Our faith needs to be in the one who crushes idols, Jesus that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's faith. Faith is always about the object. It, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair as, as we're talking today and I've got faith in that chair that it's going to hold me up. Well, 
if for some reason something's wrong with the chair, it doesn't matter how much trust I have in the chair, it's still going to break and I'm going to fall. <laughs> the, the point correct, is, correct. what's the object of faith? And I, I think that that understanding of Jesus' words here is the key, that, that when he says all things are possible for the one who believes, Jesus is inviting this man, calling this man to put his trust in Jesus and, and nowhere mm-hmm. else, not in the disciples, Right, I mean that's that's kind of maybe one of the things that's going on, and then seeing the disciples' lack of ability has caused him to question Jesus and his ability. And Jesus is saying, "No, come, come back to me, come back to to knowing who I am as the one for whom all things are possible, because because I do have that perfect trust, that perfect faith in in His own Father." And I mean, this is this I think really helps us to to keep this text from becoming a matter of law and despair and instead rather a matter of joy and good news for us. Well, absolutely. Because if, if it were to be, if it were to be preached in the vein of everything is possible, if you believe and I pastor Ulmer can do anything, if my faith is strong enough, that wouldn't even flow with the rest of the text with what happens. He would have told he could have told the father, hey, if you, if you believe enough, just tell the demon to leave. Or he could have turned to his nine or 12 disciples and said, okay, do you guys get it? Now your faith just wasn't strong enough. Now take care of it. But that's not what happens. Hmm. He, he calls the father back to him, and, and Jesus takes care of it. And I know that we're going to get to this in a second, but he, he takes care of it um, easily with a wrinkle hmm. and and the wrinkle is really good. <laughs> so Pastor Elmore, before, before we get again to that very, you know, what Jesus actually does, you get this spectacular, what I would call a prayer from the father. And I think it's just, just wonderful. The father of the child, he calls out to Jesus. He says, I believe help my unbelief, which I, I think is just a fantastic description of what's been going on in this text all along, really throughout the Gospel of Mark, particularly with Jesus' disciples, and what goes on for you and me as Christians still today. Take us into this prayer that the Father utters. Yeah, and I think that you very correctly label this uh, confession of the Father as a prayer. And And I think that you did that on purpose. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you did that on purpose, understanding the end of the text. Um, because what is prayer? I mean, in, in our catechism, we learn that prayer is is speaking to God. It is an act of worship where we place our wants, our hopes, and our needs on the object of our faith, which is God. And here, the Father, even though that he is struggling with his faith because of what he has experienced, confesses with Jesus, I do believe. Help me in my help me in my unbelief. Hmm. He reaches out to the, the correct object of faith where he, he places his trust in Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm invited as you were, as you were talking there about prayer and what we, what we confess about prayer, I was reminded of the words that we speak in the catechism for the very introduction of the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven and how we, we confess there that with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe 
and and when you look too yes. at the end of the Lord's Prayer, the word "Amen" that's a word of faith, right? Yes, yes, it shall be so. That that everything we do in prayer is a matter of faith, and so this man utters a prayer, which again is not about the strength of his own faith. In fact, he admits the the weakness of his own trust. Yeah, and it, it's not about the somehow the power of his prayer in and of his own praying. But it is rather about, again, as we've, we've been saying, it is about the strength of the one to whom he is praying. It is about the strength in the one in whom he is uttering this prayer to, which is Jesus. And, and I, I mean, again, this, this prayer, I think, is, is just so fantastic, one that we would do well to use as Christians. You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How often is that a, an appropriate prayer for me? I mean, I think every day. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think it's very similar to one of the most important and oldest prayers of the Church, which is the Kyrie. Mm. I think it's very similar to the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, mm. Lord have mercy. We we people who need everything from God um, ask Him to deliver the goods. Right. And, and he does. And, and this, is, this is the beauty of this text, is that he does deliver the goods. I mean, the, you've got this prayer from the man, I believe, help my unbelief. And, and again, Jesus isn't going to help his unbelief by you know, beating him over the head and saying, you better trust harder or something like that. You know, I, don't, I don't even know how it would have sounded. It just sounds so unnatural. Instead, he strengthens this man's yeah. faith by doing, by promising, by acting. You know, faith, faith needs that object, that promise to hold on to. And that's what Jesus gives this man. So, so as we go forward from that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Take us into the scene that, as it continues in what Jesus does for this man's son. Yeah, so after this prayer, uh, Jesus turns to the son, and he turns to the demon after saying that the crowd has gathered. And he does what he does in the Gospel of Mark, which is he rebukes the, the unclean spirit. He rebukes the demon. Says, you mute and deaf spirit, I myself command you, come out of him and no longer enter him. He, he speaks the demon. He tells the demon what is going to do because he is the Lord of the universe. The demon has to obey and the demon leaves. And when he leaves, this is when we get the, the gigantic butt, which kind of makes this scene maybe doubly powerful. Um, it, it seems to the crowd that even though Jesus had power over the demon, maybe maybe Jesus uh, wasn't the match for for this particular child's uh, ails because the the demon leaves, but that the child's left as a corpse. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean that's the the wrinkle that you were talking about, and, and again, it's, that's it's the wrinkle. Yeah, it's it's quite quite astounding as you and and I should have I should have looked at this more carefully, but as you follow the exorcisms throughout the Gospel of Mark, how you get these varying details in each one, each bringing out another. You might even say that another wrinkle, another aspect of of what it means for Jesus to have power over demons. Here, as you, as you said, you know we've seen Jesus do this before, where he commands the unclean spirit the unclean spirit obeys and we've seen this matter of, of the unclean spirit getting a one last shot maybe you could think about it like that before the the spirit leaves whoever he's possessing but but here it seems like the boy is dead and, and mark's language is pretty vivid the boy was like a corpse and the people all think he's dead 
And then Jesus, he's not done. He's, he's going to show that, no, the demon didn't win. And in the way that Mark describes it, it almost sounds like there's, there's a resurrection here. Uh, take us into to this wrinkle. Yeah, this wrinkle here is is Jesus, like like we were talking about just a second ago, Jesus is successful over this unclean spirit, but there there's this opportunity where the crowd sees what happens and it and it gives people one last chance for, for faithlessness and doubt to creep in. But but Jesus handles this kind of before they can get out any other word except he died. Hmm. Jesus reaches down, he grabs the boy's hand, and with a simple uh, lift, uh, the boy gets up. The boy is raised uh, to life. Jesus here is showing that, that he he and he alone has the, the command over this demon. He has uh, the command over even death itself that if the faith is placed in him, he has the ability to overcome anything. Mm. We go back up into the text. What does Jesus say? Everything is possible for the one who believes. And Jesus shows everybody this, not with one demonstration, but with two. Mm-hmm. So, and, and should, well, just let me ask this, and I'm not, not sure if we know for, well, should we understand, was the boy actually dead or was it that he only looked like he was dead? I I don't think that, I, I could be very wrong on this one, Pastor Apple, but I don't think it's clear from the text, but for the sake of argument and for the sake of preaching, I think I would assume that he was. Okay. Dead. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, I think it's hard to know for certain from the text that whether or not he actually was dead or not, certainly he looked like he was dead. The crowd thought he was dead, whether he was in fact or not, I'm not sure is positive, but I think, I think your point still stands that Jesus acts as if he's dead and heals him as if he were dead. You know, I mean, the, the language that Mark uses, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up. He arose. Certainly that could be, language that describes, you know, me helping you up if you've fallen. That 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 would apply there. But it also sounds an awful lot like what we heard from was it Mark chapter five with Jairus's daughter? Very similar actions that Jesus takes. Well, almost identical actions. In in that particular instance, he he reaches down and tells the little girl to get up and picks her up. Here he doesn't tell the, the child to get up to get up. He just lifts him up. But it's the same action where he reaches down, grabs them by the hand, and, and raises them. Mm-hmm. And, and at least I think that's very significant. Right. Well, and I think so. The the, the point you make is is very well taken. That again, taking those words that Jesus says before that everything is possible for the one who believes, and that person being Jesus. So what he's mm-hmm. what he's calling this this father and the whole crowd and his disciples to see here is that everything is possible for Jesus means that he's got power over demons and he's got power over death. And so again, where are you going to place your faith in the one for whom everything is possible? Jesus, the one who can conquer demons, the one who does conquer demons, the one who can conquer death, the one who does conquer death. And he shows both of those things in the way that this exorcism takes place to to give that man and to give his disciples and us still today 
the proper place for our faith, the promise to hold on to. Again, my trust can be as strong as it wants, but if I'm trusting in the wrong object or the wrong person, that doesn't matter. But when my trust is founded in the right object, and in this case, the right person, then that faith is is that strong, not because of me, but because of him. And, and here Jesus shows himself to be that one for whom everything is possible. Yeah, amen. I, I don't even think I could add, add anything onto that except to say that I think with the flow of this text and Jesus's words and actions, that's the only place that we can end up at the uh, end of 27. Hmm. So the disciples then go with Jesus back privately. They go into the house again, which we've, we've seen this. Jesus will go privately with his disciples. And this is often the place of explanation. And that's what happens as this, the scene wraps up, the crowd has been left behind. The argument with the scribes has been left behind. It's just Jesus and his disciples. And we've touched on some of these things already. They come to Jesus and they say, well, you know, what was going on, Jesus? Why couldn't we do it? And he says, mm-hmm. this can't, kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we got about six minutes here to explore this final exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Yeah. In this last uh, section here, I can't help but think about one of my colleagues down here in the coastal bend, uh, Pastor Jennings, who always makes the note that whenever Jesus is going into a house with his disciples, it's never really good news for his disciples. It's almost like a woodshed moment for them. (laughs) And I think you you got that here. And I think that their question, I think that their question shows the, the problem all around. When they asked Jesus, why were we not able to cast it out? It is showing that they were, they were and are concerned about what they were or were not able to do. They they hadn't learned the lesson even after Jesus cast out the demon and raised the boy. They were worried about them and their ability. Right, and we were talking and, and about we were talking about that. I'll, I'll just a sec. We were talking about that at the beginning. You know how how that's probably something that's in the background here. Their pride's been hurt, and apparently, you know, they still haven't gotten it here. Like Jesus, why why couldn't we do it? His answer, you know, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Well, this is, I think is where you were going earlier too. Perhaps it takes us to what the father actually said to the, to Jesus. Yes, I, I think that's true. I, I think that there's one unusual thing about this statement is that when Jesus cast out the demon and raised the child, did he pray? Hmm. Did he? Yeah. In in the text, it isn't showing that Jesus prayed, right? I think we can argue that the Father did. Yeah. And here, Jesus says this kind can't be cast out by anything but prayer. So Jesus is answering their concern why they weren't able. He is telling them, hey, guys, your work, your your faith is not in the right place. You would have been able to do this if you would have gone in an act of worship, requested from the Father what you needed, and placed your trust in Him to do the work. 
Why did they fail? Their faith was in the wrong place the whole time. I, I think that's an important thing because I, I think there's a, a tendency or a temptation on our part to hear Jesus say, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And maybe we're like, well, okay, Jesus, what, what prayer? Like, what are the words that we're supposed <laughs> to say? And I think it's quite telling that Jesus never really gives a, if I can say it this way, a rite of exorcism in the sense that these are the Correct. words that you always say. And in fact, when you look at Jesus' own ministry of exorcism, he doesn't really have a, a quote, a rite of exorcism, but it is simply about his authority and his power over the demons such that when he comes along and tells his disciples that this kind can only be cast out by prayer, it's not inviting them to quote, say the magic words or something like that, but it is about having their faith in the right object, in the right person. And that's Jesus. And it's, you know, this has always astounded me about this text. It's, it's rather astonishing to think that the disciples wouldn't have thought to have prayed that they would not have, have thought at any moment that, oh, maybe we should ask God to help. But apparently they didn't. Yeah, but it, yeah, but isn't that, isn't that like every human being yes. though? And by every yes. human being, I'm including myself in this. When, when we run into, into troubles in this life, how often instead of going to God in prayer, bringing our fears, our, our trust, our wants, our needs before him, how often do we try to take care of it ourselves? And then we are disappointed or even downtrodden because we fail. Hmm. Yes. And, and how often, and, and to use the reverse, because I know this has happened to me where I've, I've faced a situation and I did pray beforehand. And, and then the, the situation came to what I would say is a, a God pleasing ending. And I kind of, I was like, well, wow, that was, that was awesome. You know, thanks be to God. And then I, I'm kind of ashamed afterwards because it's like, you know, you, you prayed and, and the Lord is, is powerful. Why didn't you trust that he would do what he said? I mean, you know, like it's, it's, I mean, how often have I, yeah. I known that own shame, that same shame myself, because I've, I've seen like, I've approached a situation apart from prayer and I struggle and I fight and, and finally, the Lord, you know, smacks me. <laughs> what is Pastor Jennings at the woodshed moment? <laughs> and you kind of yeah. you know, get whacked. <laughs> woodshed. Yeah, you get, you get hit by the two by four. It's like, well, your trust is in yourself. Trust trust the one who can exactly. do all things. Pastor Omar, we got just like a minute here. Help us to wrap things up this morning. Yeah, I, I think my my word to you and my word to everybody who's listening is that what, what we ought learn from this passage is that Everything is possible for the faithful one. That's your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who overcame the grave. And he has invited us through our baptisms to approach him in prayer, to ask him for what we need. And like in this particular text, that he is faithful. If we ask him, he will provide. Um, may, may you be commended to a life of prayer, and may I be commended to do the same. Amen. Pastor Matt Ulmer is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about Mark chapter 9 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. 
Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.